Reimagining Time is a podcast that shares the stories and ideas of educators who are changing the way they use time to meet student needs. The thoughts expressed do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of enriching students. We sort of say, well, it's okay that you got to see and you're missing 30% of the content and it's okay that you got to be and we don't know what 20% you didn't understand. You know, like, is that really the signal we're trying to send? In this episode, we talk with Michael Horn, education speaker and author, most recently of the book, From Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child. I was so excited to have him on the podcast. Seeing his work had really made it clear that he had a lot to say on the subject of reimagining time in schools. And that's what this episode is going to be about. Why reimagining time matters, what makes it difficult, how it's currently being done, and small steps any educator can make towards realizing that vision in their own school or classroom. And it takes us to the first question I had for Michael. Why does he think reimagining time is something that's important in education? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it might be the most important thing um, because I think on on several dimensions, uh, let me just start with sort of the status quo, which is a lot of times when we innovate in education or try to redesign a school, we act as though the, the time and the use of space and the schedule and all these things are like fixed elements that we're not allowed to move somehow. You've probably seen the truth of that in your own practice. Time and the use of physical space have largely remained the same for decades. And it's true, it may be easier. Schools have limited resources and time is one of them. Many states have seat time requirements and contract hours that have to be met. But while time is not an unlimited resource, it can be repurposed, it can be a moving instead of fixed variable. It's just not typically treated that way, and the fixed time school day is just the status quo, or how we've always done it. When you do that, you take away so many degrees of freedom Mm -hmm. uh, from educators rethinking what the experience is before you've even like you know, started whiteboarding out what you might want to try to do. So so that's sort of the status quo and the prisoner of it. So in the everyday sense of it, teachers are limited by the time they have and really aren't given any flexibility when it comes to how they're going to use that time or even the physical space in a classroom. It's limiting the process of innovating early on because an assumption is made that these things can't be changed. More broadly, when I think about the use of time, Time underpins our system um, mm. in really unwitting ways. We have a, a fixed time variable learning system where we have mandated the minutes and hours and days that students spend in school. And we pass students on to different units, grades, subjects, regardless of whether they have demonstrated mastery or learning, purely based on the calendar. Which doesn't make a lot of logical sense when you think about how humans learn. Michael brings out how New Hampshire removed the Carnegie unit as a way to measure time and moved to a competency-based model, a process that started back in 1998. Starting in 2008 to 2009, it became a graduation requirement for students to demonstrate mastery of course competencies, not seat time. And there have been other secondary schools that have tried different models. But still, time sort of dominated so many high schools because all of our processes, all of our assumptions are either explicitly or implicitly built around time being this constant. 
as opposed to realizing it's actually should be highly variable to each learner's needs, each learner's priorities, where they come into a learning experience. Um, and we don't reimagine that uh, to make that the variable uh, and, and you know, the mastery of the learning that I'm trying to accomplish as the constant. But why is it so difficult to rethink this, to reimagine how time is used? It's not actually that difficult to maybe think about it or talk about it, but it's sort of like everything is still stuck in a box. Any innovations are trying to be fit into the box. You can move stuff around in the box, but that box is still there. You just build like years and years of processes. It's almost like barnacles on a boat <laughs> that all are off this fundamental assumption. And then you're like, oh, we'll take away the assumption. But you don't realize you have to like systematically go through and tear out all of these things that have been built, uh, you know, because of the assumption, like just just the disappearance of it doesn't actually change the use of time, the incentives underpinning why we pin so much on time. And I think box is the right metaphor, like 990 hours, 180 school days, right? Uh, instructional minutes, average daily attendance. These are all measures of time, not learning. So that's part of it. Reimagining involves taking things apart, taking out the stuff that's holding you back. I recently heard educator Ken Shelton speak at a conference in Massachusetts. He brought out the point that redesigning something isn't the same thing as just remixing it. To share a quote, he said, you have to tear things down in order to reimagine, redesign, and transform. So are there any education models that flip the script? Yes, and you may know them as mastery-based or competency-based education. These are founded on utilizing time as the variable. What does that mean? Yeah, and and I'll, I'll say up front, a lot of people have different names for this. Some people call it competency-based learning, for example. I like mastery-based just because I think it's an easier concept for a parent to grok. Oh, I want someone to master it before, you know, they should learn fractions before they attempt uh, algebraic fractions. Like that makes sense, right? Um, and so it's basically this idea that, hey, we might take different amounts of time uh, to master something. And that's okay because we're different human beings. We have different experiences uh, coming into an experience. We, we learn different ways. And, uh, but we ought to have, you know, the expectation ought to be that we learn before we move on from core concepts that are going to be so critical to our future learning. So instead of time being the basis for when students move on from their learning, the learning itself dictates that. Students have different strengths and lived experiences. They can all be held to high standards, but mastery-based learning allows for different lengths of time to reach those standards. And uh, it essentially flips the, you know, the, the assumption on its head. The, the time-based system of learning says, we deliver learning content, we test and assess, students move on regardless of results, they get the results afterwards. For 80 plus percent of the students, those results make them feel like failures or like bad individuals or something. Um, it directly contradicts growth mindset, perseverance, on and on. Mm -hmm. And a, a mastery-based mindset says, hey, the time is variable, the learning is going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean it it has to be linear, <laughs> right? But it just says that we're going to offer learning experiences. Mastery-based learning also affects assessment and learning outcomes. For many schools, assessment looks like a test at the end of a learning period. Students might not be able to gain a full understanding of where their learning is at based on those assessment results. 
if you get a 73, for example, as a grade, you know that there's room for improvement. You can see the questions that you got wrong, but you may not know exactly what piece you're missing that led up to that wrong answer. The beauty of mastery-based learning is that it teaches students to be aware of their own learning progressions. Assessment and testing then become tools for learning instead of just the end of the road. We still test and assess. Those can take different forms, but now we're using it to get feedback, what, which informs what a child does next. Uh, do they, you know, failures embedded in the process until they get to success. And so it builds a sense of, I can grow. It's true growth mindset. It, it embeds a sense of, Hey, the work that I put into this perseverance, it really matters. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, it embeds a sense of like, Hey, I get to set my learning goals and I get to work at something until I demonstrate mastery of it. And it's okay if it takes a few reps because that's how learning works in any other field except for school uh, yeah. at the moment. Think of how powerful that experience is for a student. They're no longer anxiously waiting for a test result to determine whether or not they've passed a class. Instead, these assessments give them feedback during the learning process. I guess the last thing is, um, I think sometimes when people think about mastery-based learning, they're like, oh, well, the slow kids will just move slow and the fast kids will just move fast. That could be problematic. Mm -hmm. My experience with it is that what I'm fast in on one thing, I'm going to be slow in on another thing and vice versa. Like we're all jagged and, you know, something explains the world to you and you move past it and just whip through. And then all of a sudden you hit something else and you're like, wow, that I got to struggle with that. And that's great. And I'm going to have the exact opposite experience. And like predicting that in advance is going to be really difficult because humans are messy. Like, and that's okay because the goal should be to optimize the learning. It's actually more rigorous than the time-based system, I'd argue. Let's define rigor for a moment. There is a piece from Education Week written by educator Larry Ferlazzo. We'll link to that in the description of this podcast episode. It's an opinion piece, but it offers an insightful look into a word that has become a little misunderstood. The problem outlined with the use of the word rigor is that sometimes it might be used to justify extremely difficult lessons delivered in a boring or non-stimulating way. In that sense, rigor almost becomes grueling instead of a meaningful challenge. So in this article, how is rigor described? Note this description by two authors and educators. First from Chris Tavani, rigor invites engagement, hard repels it. When learners are engaged in something rigorous, they lose track of time. When the activity is hard, time drags on. Here's another from Barbara R. Blackburn. True rigor is creating an environment in which each student is expected to learn at high levels. Each student is supported so he or she can learn at high levels, and each student demonstrates learning at high levels. Notice that this definition focuses on students learning at high levels while also getting the needed support. It affects teachers' expectations, how students are supported, and how students demonstrate their learning. When you think of students demonstrating that they have learned at high levels, that is far more than a score on a test. Mastery-based learning, as we've been discussing, requires that a student has demonstrated mastery of a skill. So a mastery-based system doesn't mean that the learning is going to be dumbed down for some kids. In fact, it means the opposite, that all students will be learning at high levels. 
Along these lines, there was a comment made by one of our past podcast guests, educator and consultant Brian Stack. He illustrated how, when you get on an airplane, you want your pilot to have a 100% success rate of flying and landing that plane. And 90% is not mastery, but for many students is deemed good enough. Paul LeBlanc always says this. He's the president of Southern New Hampshire University. He always says, you know, it's interesting that we use mastery-based learning in those fields that are most core to survival, like pilot, (laughs) right? And then, but somehow we don't value all these other domains as much based on the fact that we sort of say, well, it's okay that you got a C and you're missing 30% of the content and it's okay that you got a B and we don't know what 20% you didn't understand. You know, like, is that really the signal we're trying to send? So why are school calendars so fixed anyways? Like many people, I always assumed it was rooted in our history as an agricultural society. And we call it the agrarian calendar now, right? So we all assume it comes from agriculture. But if you step back and think about it, why would you have kids uh, in school during the harvest of the fall and during the planting season of the spring? Like you need, that's when you needed your help. And, And back then, of course, kids worked for grownups in effect right now. Now the grownups work for the kids in our society, but back then, you know, you worked your farm. And so if you pause on that and you think, well, wait a second, what was going on? And you look back, actually what you see is in the 1800s, like particularly in urban environments, mm-hmm. school was almost year round. Like, the, you know, Detroit was, I can't, I don't have it off the top of my head here, but it was like 250 or 270 days or something like that a year uh, of school. But what ended up happening was particularly in the summer months when it was hot uh, and and uh, infectious disease experts at the time uh, believed that the heat and close proximity of kids to each other spread disease. Um, you basically had wealthy people in these urban environments running away from schools and going to the ma- cool mountain areas or the nice uh, beach uh, side uh, resorts mm-hmm. and escaping school completely and leaving uh, lower income individuals um, still in the schools. Mm-hmm. And at some point, um, administrators and teachers and then teachers unions sort of caved to this reality and said, okay, I guess that's the new school calendar is we won't have school uh, during the summer months, because the uh, the the rich kids, in effect, <laughs> uh, have just sort of declared that this is the way it is. Um, not only is it not the uh, agricultural calendar that drove that, it was actually a deeply uh, uh, income based system that determined our calendar, and frankly, left then a lot of low income students uh, without really good viable options um, during that time while the wealthy kids were running off to all sorts of other enriching experiences that their parents were uh, a- able to uh, uh, put them into uh, during those months. This speaks to how time can be either a barrier or a support to equity in schools. It can be used in a way that benefits students who have particular advantages, while adding further challenges to students that already have a variety of roadblocks to overcome. Things like childcare, food security, enriching activities can be a challenge for many families during summer break, since it's such an extended period of time. Yeah. And it's a tough time on parents. I mean, the the irony of it, I think, is uh, even for families with means now, 
summer is incredibly stressful. Like, I mean, it's lovely and it's wonderful, but like figuring out all the different camps and what is my kid going to do this year and sort of the social pressure of, oh my gosh, are they not getting this special enrichment science, whatever experience, like it's, it's incredibly stressful. And for a lot of those listening, you know, you start the spreadsheets come out in December and then like enrollment periods in January and you're like waking up at 6am to try to get into a particular camp. It's insane. Uh, the amount of pressure we put on this time period that it has to like stand in for all the enrichment opportunities a kid will get. And it doesn't work for the low income families either. Right. Like to your point, they don't have great childcare options. They're sort of stuck at home, maybe in video games or or less savory uh, experiences. They're losing out on the enrichment opportunities that forms part of the hidden curriculum uh, that a lot of uh, 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 families are exposing their kids to. So it's it really is just not an ideal system for anyone except for our nostalgia and sort of collective memories of the beauty of summer. So what about right now? Are there any schools out there that are restructuring time? Coming out of the pandemic, this was a topic on more people's minds. But did it really change anything? I, so I've seen some. And then, you know, some academics will quickly point out, well, hey, moving to year-round calendar doesn't actually boost academic outcomes. Yeah. And for me, that's kind of not the point, if that makes sense. Like, it's to, right, it's to alleviate this pressure. Um, and just for your listeners, again, like, when people move to year-round calendars, they still have vacations, um, <laughs> right? Uh, um you know, kids still get time off uh, and there's different ways to do it. You know, some micro schools have moved to year round calendars where they're literally open every single day of the year, but there's no expectation that the kid is there every day of the year. Each family is taking the vacation that makes sense for them, which when you think about it, that's kind of cool. Um, and if they're in a mastery based learning environment, and as long as you're making, you know, some progress on your learning that, that, um, meets your goals and meets what the school expects, then like we're all good, right? Um, but some kids need a lot more time in the learning environment and it sort of acknowledges that. It's a completely different way of looking at time and the typical school day than most of us are used to. Likely, this is not the experience you had in school. And it's probably not the experience that your kids are having right now, but that clearly doesn't make it impossible. Uh, what's more popular is these balanced school years uh, calendars where they, it's, it'll be sort of thing like nine weeks on, two weeks off, um, or or you know various arrangements like that. And maybe we get four weeks in the summer or something like that. Um, so it still gives time for students to take jobs. It still gets time for um, students to have enrichment opportunities, travel, whatever else. But it also creates a much more manageable life for the teachers themselves, yeah. right? Because now we know you get to the end of May and like or June or whenever you know your school gets out. And teachers are burned out and exhausted and like they need the summer to recharge. This sort of builds in much more frequent periods of recharging in a way that I think keeps a healthier rhythm for the teaching workforce that frank frankly could use some health, uh, health and sustainability right now. This type of school calendar is seen in other countries around the world. But for schools, students and parents who are used to that anticipated summer break and set school year or have limited ability to alter their school calendar too much, all of this might seem overwhelming. On a smaller scale, many schools across the country have introduced flex periods or flexible blocks. These flexible time periods occur during the school day so that all students in the school can benefit from having that same time to get what they need. But 
any kind of change can be messy. And my own sense is like, that's where we ought to be striving toward, right? That mm -hmm. flexible, we, we call it a flex learning environment in our language, um, where students are moving flexibly and fluidly based on their needs, not based on arbitrary measures of time. Mm -hmm. And it is messy to your point. Like we move at different rates and we're all over the place and whatever else. And I think for it to really work as a school, A, you need your educators to be comfortable with that messiness and that students will be in different places. And B, you have to create a really strong culture of like how you operate through the messiness. And, and places can have different uh, takes on this, but you need a consistent culture that prioritizes uh, the value and worth of each individual student, that they're going to get what they need when they need it, uh, that values rigor, that like you really are going to master that. And and I don't mean sort of in some top-down rigor way, like you're really going to demonstrate that you know it. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. And that um, we value that individuals, it's okay if they need like a five-minute break in the middle of the day. These flexible learning environments can meet student needs, but also help train them how to be flexible themselves. They can learn how to manage their time and their priorities and regulate their own attention, energy, and even emotions. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. Like my kids, the school that they go to is a Montessori school. And um, uh, when my wife first visited it, like she saw some kid all of a sudden get up in the middle of the class and like run three laps around outside and then come back in and sit back down. She's like, what just happened there? And, this, and, the, and the person giving the tour was like, oh, I guess he needed a break. I don't know. She's like, my kids are definitely coming here because like we all need breaks. And we actually, that's actually a really cool uh, thing to model, like, um, because as we know as adults, it's something we ought to do more of, actually. <laughs> and I'm not surprised, like, most schools are sort of like, we can't jump into the deep end right away. Yeah. And so finding those periods where the alternative would be no enrichment at all, or where the alternative is maybe no, you know, no foreign language class at all, or whatever, like these safe spaces to start, a, start to build a culture around that, I think makes a ton of sense and then lean into it over time. We've come to our final question. What advice would Michael give to a school who is thinking about reimagining time and wants to start the process? Where would they even start? What I would do is a couple things. One, find a safe space to start. Uh, don't try to overthrow everything at once because it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Um, find a safe space, identify a small team whose job is to really lead that work and free them up from sort of the day-to-day -day stuff that they would otherwise be doing so that they have the time to do this. We'd never ask to go to your air, airplane analogy before. We never asked pilots to build a new plane in the middle of flying it, uh, but that's sort of what we ask teachers to do a lot. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be one. And then two, when you're doing it, start with the learning outcomes you really want every child to master it doesn't have to be everything on the list, right? Identify the ones that are really important and core and then identify how you would know if they had mastered it, right? It, um, that could be through a project. It could be through a test. It could be through an oral conversation. It could be a few different pathways for all those things, right? Um, but uh, identify what mastery looks like mm -hmm. and then start designing what that learning experience is so that students can actually reach it. Um, but if you don't do that work up front of naming what the like what you're hoping that they master and how you would know, it's awfully hard to um, to overthrow the time bound way we've always done learning. 
um, when you've done that work up front, then it's a lot easier to find the right software, the right curriculum, whatever it is that's going to uh, underpin the learning that your, uh, your students are doing. Well, this isn't quite the end. I had a follow-up question here as well. If you're listening right now, maybe you're not a decision maker at your school, or even if you are, you're just one person. You may be thinking, this is all interesting, but what can I do? How can you reimagine time in your own classroom? Yeah, yeah. So there's actually this great um, m- movement, for for lack of a better phrase, called the Modern Classrooms Project, um, which is a nonprofit um, that helps individual teachers do mastery-based learning and sort of change their learning environments. And it's difficult, right? Like, let's just name it. If the student comes to the end of your class, like, do you let them, you know, and it's like December and it's not May, like, do you let them keep learning? Are they, what if they're like, actually missing several key learning objectives from years much earlier and you weren't trained in doing that. Like it can be messy, right? The cool thing that uh, Kareem Farah, who started that said to me is like, if you just start with that teacher in the school moving to this and the students and the family start to get a taste of what that can be and how it can embed success for each child in the design, as opposed to, you know, the fixed time thing that we've been talking about, then it actually has a ripple effect in the school because when they move up to the next grade or the next subject or whatever it is, and they all of a sudden are back into the time fixed, we're all learning this on this day sort of lock mindset, they're going to be like, uh, wait, I already mastered that. Or wait, like what I need to be working on is this, right? Like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> and then that allows a conversation to start to take place uh, between teachers and some spread of some cool ideas, I think. And so, um, you know, I think that the message is like, go slow to go fast and really overturning the uh, tyranny of time in, in schools. But uh, but there's no reason an individual teacher can't start to go down the pathway. To learn more about the Modern Classrooms Project, go to modernclassrooms.org. Michael sums up what he thinks is most important. I honestly think like the most important thing we can do is change our our system for being a time-based one that embeds failure by design in it yeah. to a mastery-based one that reimagines time as the variable mm-hmm. and every student's learning is, is the thing we're going to say, hey, you're going to be successful and we're going to send a message that each child, you can do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reimagining Time, and we especially want to thank the educators who have shared their time with us. This podcast is produced by Enriching Students, a software tool that's designed to help schools manage flex time. It's about time. Find Reimagining Time on your favorite podcast app and follow to get notified about new episodes.